You all may be seated. This morning, I want to just start off by just acknowledging that there are so many of you that today is quite a difficult day for you. That in the providence of God, maybe you desire to be a mother, but you're not yet a mother. Perhaps in the providence of God, in the sorrow of His providence, you've had to bury a child or not go full term with a child. Or maybe you've had to sit at your mother's casket and mourn her loss. And today as we come together as the people of God, there is a, there is a sorrow in your heart. There is, there is a, a void in your family today as you go to lunch and as you go to dinner realizing that mom won't be there. Or you won't be holding the little baby that you so desire. And so, dear sister, I want you to know that we love you and that we care for you. And that we have been praying for you. I, I prayed specifically for you over the course of last night. I know our pastors are praying for you. And in these days, as you're kind of dealing with the emotions of it and the burden of it, if you, if you need counsel, if you need somebody just to pray with you, to put their arm around you, to love you, if you just need somebody just to listen to you for a while so that you can talk, I want, you, I want to invite you to come to our church office. Give us a call. Give us an email. Send us a text. Do something. Reach out to one of our pastors so that we can just come beside you and love you. We, we aren't particularly brilliant men or particularly wise men, but we are willing to be present men. Present men with the power of the Holy Spirit that we could come together. And so, dear sister, I want to just extend that invitation to you in love uh, from our pastors to you. Do you know, today being Mother's Day... It's a good thought to have that for all of us who have had in our life, whether it be our wife or our mother or us being a mother ourselves, know that a mom, having a mom, comes with privileges, right? Comes with very distinct privileges. That there are things that a good and kind and present mother will do for her children that she just won't do for everybody else. It's a privileged position to be a child in the house of a good mother. I think about my dear wife. She, I, not long ago, we had a child with a stomach virus, all right? I think over the course of that night, she changed her shirt about three times. There is puke on the wall. I mean, just splattered everywhere. And man, you know what I heard in between kind of uh, violent vomiting sessions? My wife rocking that baby all night long, singing to her. You know what? Not every child in the world is going to be held by my wife and have her vomit joyfully, I guess joyfully, wiped off of the walls. But Gracie and Kate and Sarah do. Because it is a privilege. They are in a privileged position in our house. I think about my mother-in-law. You guys know about uh, when, I, when I had my surgery, the recovery was, was pretty grueling. The recovery was, was pretty tough. And so for about four weeks, I was just sitting in a chair, man, like a lump on a log. And she came and she just moved in with us. And she would help me get up out of the chair. She waited on me hand and foot. I would get down and discouraged and she would encourage me. She would stop and pray with me. She just made clear. I can still hear her saying, Cody, just one day at a time. Cody, this is going to be our saying, just one day at a time. And she'd notice my countenance falling and my, my heart being discouraged. And she'd say, Cody, what did I tell you? It's one day at a time. 
It's one moment at a time. I'm not always going to have to help you out of this chair. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. I don't know that she'd do that for just anybody. But she'd do that for me. Because she has taken me as a son. I think about my own dear mother. My own blessed dear mother that has endured hell on earth raising me. Some of y'all knew me as a kid, right? I had a lot more emergency room visits than I did trophies in the closet, okay? And yet, my mom on more than one occasion has received a frantic phone call from me only to comfort me. Only to remind me that this too shall pass and everything's going to be okay. On more than one occasion, I can recount back to growing up and remember now things I didn't appreciate then about how she would do without things that she might want or that she might even need so that I might have things that I want, so that I might have things that I need. I think about her when I was in the hospital for those six days and her saying, I am not leaving the room, all right? Now look, y'all, I'm 30. I got a wife. I got babies. But there was this uncomfortable chair in my room, and for six nights, my mother slept right there. And I'm telling you, it's not because the chair was plush and the chair was comfortable. It was because I am her son. And I have a position of privilege in her life. I have a position of honor in her life. She'll do things for me that she won't do for just anybody. And as we read the Bible, what we find is that good parents are always intended to paint for us a picture. Good parents are always intended to paint for us a picture of what it means to be in the household of God. Of what it means to be in the family of God. Of what it means to be the people of God. And I think that is right at the center of our text this morning. On what it means to live in the dignified privileged position as a child of God even though we endure this fallen world. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Now, I'm going to venture to say that this is another one of those passages that probably you've never heard preached before. Okay? And you've probably never heard this preached before because frankly this is a weird passage. Okay, Matthew is the only one that gives us this account. One of the scholars that I read said that this may just be the most peculiar passage in all of the New Testament. Now, I don't know about that, but there's a lot of weird stuff happening. And let me just tell you, if I'm choosing the passages, I'm not choosing this one, okay? So, let's just, I'm just going to ask you for some, for some long-suffering here, okay? Because we're going to give this thing our best shot. I believe there is a word for the Lord from, for us from this passage. Would you stand with me as we finish chapter 17 together this morning? We're going to be in Matthew 17 beginning in verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. 
however, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant and profitable word for us this morning. So the scene is set. Jesus is now back in Capernaum. This is where he was earlier in his ministry. Capernaum had really kind of served as a base of operations for Jesus. He's likely back living in Peter's house. Peter was from Capernaum. And perhaps even being at Peter's house, a group of collectors, of tax collectors, come to Peter and they ask him a very straightforward question. Will your teacher pay the temple tax? Will Jesus pay the two drachma tax? A drachma was a form of currency. It was also called the half shekel tax. And it would amount to, one drachma would amount to about a single day's work. So, so this was a tax that was paid annually by Jewish people, uh, two days wages to support the work of the temple. Now, when we hear the tax collectors here, we should not in our minds go to Matthew chapter 9 and to think of tax collectors like Matthew himself was, or like Zacchaeus was, the kind of tax collectors that the Bible refers to as sinners, the kind of tax collectors that Jesus was, was kind of looked at very skeptically for hanging out with. That's not the kind of tax, these were not the tax collectors for Rome. These were not the tax collectors that were raised up from their own people to go and basically rob their people on behalf of Rome. No, these were people that were from within. And in fact, it was seen not only as a civic duty, but a form of civic pride to help as the nation of Israel to contribute your your portion, your sum, toward the uh, functioning of the temple. So the money would go to help pay for all of the livestock that would be slaughtered for atonement. It would help fund the livelihoods of the priests, the men, to sustain them and the things that they would need. So it was basically the tax that was given by the people of God so that the temple of God would continue to function as it was intended to function. It was kind of instituted back in Exodus chapter 30. When we go back, if you go back to Exodus chapter 30, you'll see that God is establishing there the tabernacle. And with the tabernacle, Moses establishes a tax of this sum by every male over the ages of 20 and over so that they can help fund the work of the tabernacle. And then this is carried forward by the people of God to the temple when the temple is built and has been carried forward all the way to the time of Jesus. So this was, a, this was not a, a, a malicious question on behalf of these collectors most likely. This is simply a question out of curiosity. Is your teacher going to pay the tax? Now, Peter responds immediately, doesn't he? Peter responds and he responds by saying, yes, unequivocally. Yes, my teacher is going to pay the tax. It was the assumption of Peter that Jesus would pay the temple tax. It's very likely that in the two and a half years that Peter has been walking with Jesus and living with Jesus, that he has himself witnessed Jesus paying the tax. Jesus was not known to be one that would shrink back from his responsibilities, shrink back from his role as a man, his responsibilities as a citizen of the people of God. No, Jesus was a perfect citizen. Jesus was the perfect neighbor in every sense of the way. 
And not only that, what we see throughout the ministry of Jesus and would certainly would have been in the mind of Peter is that whatever God's word said, Jesus did. Whatever God's word said, Jesus did. So this was not just an erroneous tax. This was not something that they just made up by the seat of their pants. This was something that was established in the Old Testament that was carried forward. It was something that was good and right and reasonable. So Peter, underst- Peter immediately responds, yeah, he's going he's gonna to do it. There, there's no need for more words. There's no need for more explanation. Yes, Jesus is going to pay the tax. You see, this is a fascinating thought, isn't it? What Paul tells us is that Jesus was a man who was born under the law. He says this in Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And I think what Paul is saying there in Galatians 4 is right at the center of this kind of peculiar interaction between Jesus and Peter. That Jesus was born under the law, one who was responsible to obey the law according to the will of God. And Jesus was to obey the law, every word of it, every letter of it, so that we might ultimately be adopted into the household of God. See, Jesus was the ultimate law giver. Jesus was, John tells us, the law incarnate. And what we are reminded of in our passage right here is that Jesus was, at the very same time, the ultimate law fulfiller. That there was not a single part of the Mosaic law, 633 commandments strong, there was not a single aspect of the law of Moses which Jesus did not perfectly, explicitly obey. And live out in his life. Think about what this means. Because this is a radical concept. Don't just blow past the fact that Jesus obeyed all of the law in its entirety. It means that Jesus did not just obey the law in action. But Jesus obeyed the law in motive. And Jesus obeyed the law in attitude. Jesus didn't just obey the letter of the law, but Jesus obeyed the spirit of the law. That Jesus never a single time allowed something unclean to enter his mouth. Jesus never a single time disobeyed his mother and father, even though they were flawed and he was perfect. Jesus never a single time was jealous of his neighbor or coveted after his friend or did something to please the person that he wanted to seek their approval. Jesus never a single time gave an offering with anything less than a willing, generous, and cheerful heart. That every law that we know of, every law that we can conceive of, every, every lamb that he laid on the altar, every commandment that he lived out, he lived out with passion, with zeal, with certainty, with delight in God himself. Jesus was the perfect lawgiver, but even beyond that, what we see in Christ incarnate, that he was the perfect law fulfiller. And brothers and sisters, can I tell you, that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need Jesus. 
We need Jesus not just because we have disobeyed the law. We certainly have disobeyed the law. But we need Christ because we are incapable of obeying the law. We need Christ because we are sinners who sin, not sin, sin, not people who sin and then became sinners. It is by nature that we are children of wrath. It is by nature that we are children, sons of disobedience. And so we need Jesus, the ultimate law fulfiller, not just because we have sinned against the law, but because we are utterly incapable of fulfilling and, and, uh, and obeying the law ourselves. Now, maybe you'd say, but I'm a good person. The Bible teaches us that there is no such thing as a good person. And you're thinking, and you're having an argument with me in your head, and you're thinking, whoa, now, easy. I know bad people. I see the guy on my street that abandoned his family. I didn't have abandoned my family. I, I, see, I see the man on, on my street that, that's too big of a bum to get up and go to work, but I get up and I go to work and I provide for my family. I know about her in my office that's having an adulterous affair uh, behind her husband's back. And I'm not committing adultery. But brothers and sisters, good is not defined by you comparing yourself with someone bad. But in that comparison, the only thing that you can prove is that you are slightly more moral, slightly more ethical than another bad person. But if you compare yourself to true righteousness, if you compare yourself to true holiness, and that's what we see in God's law, that's what we see in the law incarnate in Christ himself, then the only reaction that we can have is, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. My righteousness is as filthy rags. Just think about the second greatest commandment. The second greatest commandment is pretty straightforward, right? Even, even people not in the church kind of try to follow the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's just think about that. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Maybe you say, well, yeah, I do. So you seek the well-being of your neighbor with the same ferocity, the same ferocity, the same passion, the same zeal that you seek your own well-doing, well-being. So, so let's just say that your neighbor is in need financially. Do you give with a willing, generous, and cheerful heart to him? Not do you give to him. That's not the question. That is a question, but that's, not, that's too simple. Not only do you give to him, but do you give with a willing, cheerful, and generous heart to him? Let's say your neighbor needs help with their children. Are you helping her with her children in a way without passing a single ounce of judgment on her for needing the help that's provided? Maybe you're the kind of guy that would give the shirt off of your back. Well, are you giving the shirt off of your back so that you can bring good into the life of your neighbor and glory to the name of God? Or are you giving the shirt off of your back so that your neighbor will think highly of you? So that he will then go to all of your friends and all of your other neighbors and tell them how wonderful you are and what a great neighbor you are. Are you doing it trying to increase your standing in his eyes? Or are you doing it so that you might only increase the standing of Christ? You see, even the good that we do is corrupted. 
and it's corrupted because we are fundamentally broken, fundamentally bad, fundamentally sinners. And yet most people are trying to live their lives to prove them to themselves that they are in fact good. To perhaps even prove to God that they are good. Friend and neighbor, would you listen to me? Stop running the rat race. Stop doing the exhausting work of trying to earn the approval of God. Stop making yourself miserable trying to prove to yourself that is good. And come to Christ Jesus who is actually good. Come to Christ Jesus who has perfectly fulfilled the law. Come to Christ Jesus who is perfect in attitude, in motive, in action. Come to Christ Jesus and stop trying to stack up your account to cancel out your debt and have your debt wiped away and your account credited with the righteousness of Christ. Come to Jesus and be set free from the exhausting rat race that you've been running all of your life. Now, I imagine that Jesus' response surprised Peter a little bit. Okay? So Peter, he's got his boys back here. All right? These guys are coming. They're asking questions about Jesus. And Peter's got Jesus' back. He says, yeah, he's going to pay it. And now he goes, in, he goes back into where Jesus is. And I, I think this is a demonstration of Jesus' omniscience. We're not really told. But Jesus apparently already knows the entire conversation that has happened. He doesn't even wait for Peter to initiate the conversation. He just asks Peter a question. Who pays taxes in a kingdom? Is it the princes or is it the people? Who pays taxes in the kingdom? Is it the sons of the king or is it the conquered lands? Who pays taxes in the kingdom? And of course, I imagine reluctantly, Peter gives the obvious answer. Uh, the people, not the sons, right? And, and, and you got to believe that Peter, he, he's, in chapter 16 and 17, Peter has shown the ability to say a lot of just wrong things. Okay? Well-intentioned, good-spirited, but wrong. Okay? And I think by this time for Peter, he's like, when am I going to learn to keep my mouth shut? I, all I said was the word yes. I said the word yes. The word yes. And now I'm being spoken to in this parable by Jesus. And I don't even know how to land that thing, man. This makes Peter such a relatable figure in the scriptures, doesn't it? But what is Jesus doing here? What is Jesus doing here? Remember what's been going on. Jesus, the, the disciple, Jesus has been revealing to his disciples so much about the nature of who he is. He has for the first time explicitly told them that he is in fact the son of God. He has told them explicitly for the very first time that he is to suffer and he is to die and he is to be raised in resurrection glory. He has went up on the mountain of transfiguration. Peter was there, and he has revealed himself as coming in the glory of his Father. So here's what Jesus, I think, is saying to Peter. All right, Peter, let's put all this together now. Let's put all of this together. You've seen me pay the temple tax? Sure, but let's think about it. The temple is the, my Father's temple. I am the Son of God, remember? This is my Father's temple in which my father's priests are, are offering up my father's sacrifices. 
This tax goes to my father's temple to perform and fund the work that my father has demanded. I am a prince in the kingdom of God. I am the only begotten son of the living God. This is my father's work. Is it not absurd that I would pay a tax to his temple? Is it not outlandish that I would fund my father's work? When I am here doing my father's work, think about what this is about. In the temple, the money is going to help fund the sacrifices that are going to be offered to the Lord for the atonement of the people. And yet Jesus is the one, he is the worthy lamb that will be laid himself on the altar to be the once and for all sacrifice for the atonement of the world. How outlandish it is that he would pay a tax to buy bulls when he is going to go and lay down and die for his church. How outlandish. Not only that, but he is funding a temple that in just a few weeks he is going to render utterly obsolete. While Jesus dies on the cross, the veil in the temple will be torn from the top to the bottom. The reconciliation of God now offered to his people that they can come into the Holy of Holies, dwelling in them with the very Spirit of God. Jesus is going to render render the temple utterly obsolete, and now they're asking, well, are you going to pay your tax? Don't you know that Jesus just wants to say, hey, bro, there's not going to be a temple. Don't sweat it. Don't sweat it. It's absurd to consider that Jesus, the mediator, the high priest, is to fund the work of a lesser priest for a lesser sacrifice, all of which are intended to point the children of God toward himself. Yet it's in the absurdity of the gospel that we find its glory, isn't it? It's in the absurdity of the gospel that we are provoked to worship, isn't it? It is absurd to think of a God veiled in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, to step into the earth that he might die for us. And not just die for us, but do things like pay a temple tax and fulfill the law and obey the law and live out the very law that points to him and proclaims him and was given by him. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus emptied himself. Now understand what that means. Jesus did not empty himself of his deity. That is, Jesus did not empty himself of being God. Instead, Jesus emptied himself of his dignity. Jesus emptied himself not of his divine nature. Rather, Jesus emptied himself of being appreciated, loved, adored as he truly is. Jesus emptied himself of the divine privileges that were rightfully his as the second member of the Godhead. Jesus emptied himself of the privilege of sitting at the right hand of the Father among which millions of creatures are proclaiming holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty that he might be veiled in flesh, come into the earth, walk in our shoes, live our lives, face our temptation, obey our laws, and then ultimately be sacrificed for our sins. It is absurd. 
it is absurd that the God who dug the Pacific and the God who built the Himalayas, the God who knows the numbers of hairs on your head, the God who wove you together in your mother's womb, the God who painted the skies with the galaxies would at the very same time be the God that was to owe a temple tax, to walk in a man's shoes, to die a man's death. It is absurd to think of any any deity, any essence of divinity to demonstrate humility. And yet we see humility in the life of Jesus right here, right now. Utterly absurd and at the very same time utterly glorious. It is absurd to think of a humble God, a humble creator, and yet that is what the Christian can say that no other religion on earth can say, is that we have a God who has humbled himself. It is the very absurdity of the gospel that provokes us to worship, that leads us to sing, that causes us ourselves to lay down our lives and to go in his likeness. Now I want you to hold that thought for just a second. Because what we're seeing is a principle. Jesus is teaching us something here. He gives us a very specific reason that he's going to pay the tax. Jesus actually pays the tax. He points out its absurdity and then he pays it anyway. And and in that there is a principle. Here's what I think we see. Jesus is temporarily setting aside his kingdom privileges for the sake of his kingdom passion. Jesus is temporarily, underlined temporarily, okay? Jesus isn't going to be humble forever. Jesus is going to come back in victory. Jesus is going to come back in slaughter. But Jesus is going to temporarily set aside his kingdom privileges as the son of God for the sake of his kingdom passion. For the sake of building up his house with living stones that are sinners that he has washed clean. He's going to forfeit what are his divine rights so that we might be able to share in his goodness. So that he might wipe away. What is the specific reason that he gives? He says, I'm going to pay the tax so that I don't offend them. So that I don't offend. Now, I don't know about y'all, that makes me nervous. All of a sudden, Jesus is doing things so as not to offend people. Most of the time, we, 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 we go to a place of political correctness when we think about that. That is not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus' aim here is not political correctness. No, instead, what Jesus desires to do, the word offense there literally means a stumbling block. Jesus says, I am going to do things that are absurd in nature, unnecessary for me to do by my own divine right as the second member of the, of the Trinity because I want to remove all potential stumbling blocks to recognition of who I truly am. I want to remove all potential stumbling blocks for these men who have come with apparently no malice in their hearts that they might not stumble over my not paying the tax, my offending of their conscience so that now they they will be able to receive and to hear the gospel and to know that I am an upright and honorable man and even more so an upright and honorable God. 
So Jesus is going to temporarily set aside his kingdom privileges for the sake of his kingdom passion that he might wipe away offenses that are unnecessary, wipe away stumbling blocks. Now here's where it gets to us. Here's where it gets to us. There's something in our text that if you read between the lines a little bit, or if if you'll be really cautious as you study the scriptures here, that on one hand is utterly glorious, and on the other hand comes with a weighty responsibility. All right. Notice notice what he says here. In Jesus' question, he says uh, in verse 26, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. It is not an accident that in what I believe to be parabolic language here, that Jesus uses plural to speak of the sons. He could have just spoken of the son of the king, and it would have been just as true, correct? But he says the sons, a plurality of sons, a house filled with princes. In in verse 27, the ESV translates it like this. It says, uh, says, however, not to give offense to them. But virtually every other translation that I read says so that we don't give offense to them. So that we, me and you, Peter, us together as the sons of God. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, Peter, not only is it absurd for me to pay the temple tax, it is absurd for you to pay the temple tax because I have been born under the law that you might be receive adoption as a son, as a child of God. You too have divine rights. You too have divine privileges. So given to you by my life, by my work, by my righteousness, you have been adopted into the household of God and it is equally as absurd for you to pay the tax. Brothers and sisters, Sisters, we are the children of God. We are the children of God. Jesus here is looking to Peter and calling Peter his brother. Matter of fact, he even applies it this way. He goes and when he pays the tax, who does he pay for? Himself and Peter. Himself and Peter. Zach, you've heard us tell the story about when he went to uh, hang out with Shabani in Swaziland. And he goes, and, and, and there's, not, there's not good parking, and there's, there's a situation, and, like nobody, and, and they're having trouble. you got to remember, Swaziland has a king, a wicked king, but he has a king. And nobody's paying attention, and they're needing to get through, and they're on a time crunch. And Shabani just runs through, and he says, I am a child of the king, or I'm a servant of the king. He didn't tell them which king. And they hurried him through. Why? Because being in the house of the king comes with privileges. Brothers and sisters, we are far greater than mere servants of the king. We are sons and daughters of the king. Romans 8 says that we have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul says also in Romans 8 that we are we are. We are co-heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. The inheritance that is owed only to Christ Jesus himself as the Son of God has now been given to us through Christ that we get the same inheritance that only the Lord Jesus is deserving of. That we will gather at the table. That we are now in the family. That we have the dignity, the privileges that come with the house of God. In the Old Testament, not a single time Not a single time do you read of the people addressing God in prayer as Father. Not a single time. 
He is spoken of as being the father of the house of Israel, as being the father of the people of Israel, but they would not even verbally speak his covenant name, Yahweh, out of reverence and fear of him. And yet, how does Jesus tell us to pray? Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Brothers and sisters, and can I just call you that and point out that is a privilege? We are in the family of God. We cry out to him, Abba, Father, and he hears us not as voices in the wilderness, not as ants scurrying around on the earth, but as his sons and as his daughters in the dignified, privileged position of his household. You and I are sons of God, co-heirs with Christ, deserving of the inheritance of Christ only because of Jesus' righteousness himself. The absurdity of the gospel is the glory of the gospel. And so what Jesus is teaching Peter is something that we will see lived out in the life of the apostles. That just as Christ has emptied himself temporarily of his divine rights, of his divine privileges, as to not be a stumbling block, so we must also. There are going to be times in our lives in which we have freedom in Christ to do things, in which we have freedom in Christ to say things, in which we have freedom in Christ to go places that we should not say, should not do, should not go, not because they would be sinful, but because they would be a stumbling block to the gospel in someone else's life. Yes, that seems hard. Yes, that seems sacrificial. And yet, yes, that is in the image of the Lord Jesus. That is exactly what we see Christ do. In the New Testament, we kind of see this in in two different lenses. First of all, we we think of passages like 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, when it's talking about unbelievers. I think that's kind of first and foremost in Jesus' mind here, as to not cause an unbeliever to stumble and not hear the gospel. Let me give you a practical example practical example of what this could look like. Let's say Megan and I are going to welcome over some Muslim friends. And they're going to come over to our house and we're going to cook for them. Our kids are going to play together and we're going to have a good time together and talk about life and talk about all those things. Well, when they come, guess what we're not going to eat? We're not going to eat baby back ribs. All right? We're not going to eat baby back ribs. Why? Because it would bring offense to them. It would bring offense to their conscience. It would bring offense to what they have known all of their lives. It would be impossible for them to be at ease in my home if there's a big old slab of baby bags hanging out on the table. And y'all, we got bigger things to talk about than ribs. We've got to talk about the deity of Christ. We've got to talk about the triune Christian God. And we've got to talk about grace. We've got to talk a lot about grace. So we've got bigger things to talk about than ribs. So I'm going to take ribs off the menu. So not to bring an offense because the message that I have, the things that I have to say are offensive enough in their nature. Now it's temporarily laying it aside. Hear what I'm saying. When my friends step out, the ribs are coming back. I might even have them on the grill waiting on me. Just just to remind myself that I am free in the Lord Jesus But I'm going to suspend that privilege 
I'm going to set that privilege aside that I might be able to speak with gentleness, kindness, and grace that the Lord Jesus is God and that he is the way, the truth, and the life and that no man gets to the Father except through him. It's a small privilege to set down for such a glorious revelation, glorious opportunity. The other, the other lens which, which we see this lived out in the life of the apostles spoken of in the New Testament is in the context of weaker Christians. And Christians that, that perhaps have a weaker conscience. I'm thinking specifically of, of Romans chapter 14. And so we might set aside some of our privileges as sons, some of our privileges as children of God, because those things might bring offense to our brother, to our sister, and cause them to, to, uh, to have an issue of the conscience that makes it harder for them to accept us as a brother, accept us as a sister, to heed our counsel and our wisdom, to listen to our preaching. You know, for me... There are some things that I have set aside, some privileges, some liberties that I have, believe that I have in Christ Jesus to be a Christian pastor and, in fact, a Christian here in the South, here in the Bible Belt. There are, there are some expectations placed on pastors and, in fact, placed on all Christians here in the Bible Belt that are extra-biblical, not from the Scriptures, but instead are cultural concepts. And yet I choose to abide by some of those cultural concepts because they don't cost me anything truly. And they remove stumbling blocks. Let me give you a couple of examples. Cutting grass on Sunday. Now, if you cut grass on Sundays, I'm not rebuking you here, okay? I'm speaking because you're free in Christ Jesus, amen? And some of y'all, like my parents live up in the boondocks. Ain't nobody going to know what you're cutting anyway, Okay? But in my neighborhood, everybody knows when everybody's cutting grass. And there are some people that believe that to do anything like that on a Sunday is sin. Now, I believe the scripture teaches contrary to that. I believe the scripture says something, in fact, directly opposite of that. But you know what? I don't have to cut grass on Sunday. That, 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 is a, that is a privilege that I can set aside a right. And I know cutting grass is a privilege, amen? Uh, so I, can, I can set that aside... And hang out in the house so as not to be a stumbling block to those that are watching. Something else. There, there are times in which unjust things happen to me. We live in a broken world. We live in a world when bad things are going to happen to you. Unfair things are going to happen to you. Unjust things are going to happen to you. Like, let, let me give you like a really basic example. Sometimes you're going to get a meal at the restaurant that's just not cooked right. You know what I feel like I've done as a Christian? I feel like I have forfeited the right to call out the chef. I feel like I have laid aside the right to ruin that waitress's day because she may just know that I'm a Christian. And she probably isn't responsible anyway. And the chef might be having a bad day. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that down so as not to cause a stumbling block to the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we must be willing to empty ourselves of things that we like, freedoms that are available to us temporarily so that the gospel can be advanced. Is our kingdom passion such that we are willing to lay aside our kingdom privileges that the kingdom might be advanced, that the bigger picture might be expanded because there's a promise in here for us too. 
See, Jesus didn't just talk, reveal his humanity. He didn't just talk about the absurdity. How did he pay the tax? He put a shekel in the mouth of a fish. And he said, Peter, as absurd as it is for you to pay it, watch what I'm going to do, man. And he goes and Peter catches the fish with a hook, which is bizarre in and of itself. It's always a net in the Bible. Uses a hook, catches the fish like with a bobber's the way I got it pictured. And he takes, and sure enough, man, there's going to be a shackle there because Jesus has said that it's there. And so everything that we temporarily lay aside as being in the likeness of Christ, we at the same time remember that Jesus did not just come in humility. Jesus did not just come in humanity, but that Jesus has given given us the assurance of his deity and in his deity he will provide for us in every sacrifice in every struggle in every privilege laid down and he will reward us in glory in a day in which there will be no sacrifices there will be no forfeiting of privileges only enjoyment of the pre- pre- presence and pleasure of God so brothers and sisters you can lay those things down You can set those things down because the humble Christ is at this very same time the divine Christ. And he will always provide what you need to sustain your joy and to sustain your ministry in his name. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer.